rock and roll. Welcome to the podcast. Um, Welcome back to the podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what podcast is this, yo? Project A Plus. <laughs> oh, I thought it was the uh, get through the films we watched this week as quickly as possible so you can go back to watching uh, Patrick K12's videos <laughs> podcast. Yeah, let's just uh, say that without any uh, explanation so it sounds like we're fans. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, big fans. Huge fans. Uh, enormous fans. But hang on, why is there this huge month-long hole in the Project A Plus schedule? Why has it been so long since the last episode? I don't even know when the last episode was released, so... <laughs> but there is two events that uh, coincided with each other, basically. Mm-hmm. Where I went and visited my family, which took a while. And then I moved. And then your computer broke. Yep. <laughs> And that's why we uh, haven't not recorded in quite a little bit. Let's see if we still... You think it's like riding a bike, you that our podcast muscles are still going to be good? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I have to say, I, I disapprove of your uh, lazy naming scheme for the last couple of episodes. <laughs> but this, this is like its own series of boringly titled, unillustrated episodes. <laughs> Uh, but the, the illustrations are the best part. Yes, my, my, my beloved workhorse iMac from 2010 finally collapsed. I had to get a new one, and it took a couple of weeks. And now it's here. But Hugh, how could you buy an Apple product knowing that they use what amounts to child like slavery in China to build their products? Well, e- easy. I just went to the uh, Apple store, uh, mm. punched in some details, and uh, it arrived a couple of weeks later. Mm-hmm. The children got to work on it. Mm. Pretty efficient little fellows. <laughs> it's a little racist. Kids are little. Bonus features, bonus, bonus features, bonus features, bonus, bonus So we're not going to bother guessing. Let's just talk. How many films did you watch? Uh, I actually have to count. <laughs> I watched quite a few. It's been like, what, like a month, like we said, so. You don't have to talk about them all. I'm going to talk about them all. Well, I'm going to talk about some of them uh, um, in one go. All right. Hello? I'm counting. Oh, you're counting. Jeez. Fuck, you fucking interrupted me. Now I have to ca- start counting again. I watched 26 films total. 26? Okay. Mm-hmm. How many films uh, passed in front of your... Uh, eyeballs. Ooh. Now, as you know, I, I've been without my computer. That's true. But you can still watch movies, can't you? Don't you have a television? That's what I mean. Like, what, what better opportunity to 
spend my time watching films because what else am I going to do? Jack off, read the Bible. Uh, let's have, let's have a count. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty, twenty-one, twenty. What did you say? Twenty-six. I think so. Twenty-seven, twenty-eight, twenty-nine. Oh God. <laughs> Thirty-one. <laughs> Seriously, what else was I going to do? Um, I, I, I gave you a great suggestion. 34, 35, 36, maybe, maybe we should record a podcast today. 38, 9. 9? Yeah. 39 or just 9? Just 9. Yeah, that's good. I mean, it's not good in this sense that I have to stop talking about 26 films. <laughs> Even though, as as I said, some of them I don't, I'm not going to talk about that much because we've already talked about them in the show. So. I mean, you're welcome to not talk about any of them very much. No, no, no. That's not that's that's against the rules of bonus features. Is it? Yeah. I hate this episode already. Um, so the first film I watched was Morgiana, which is a 1972 feature by... Shiraz Hers, a director I spoke about previously on this very podcast when I discussed his earlier film, The Cremator. Ah. So Hers, as you know, as some of our audience will know, as all of our one audience will know, (laughs) one audience in the sense that there's only one audience for this podcast, and also it's an audience comprised of one. Uh, Hers was associated with the Czechoslovak New Wave. Uh And during this period... He avoided making any overtly political films, Mm. believing the communist regime would shape them into propaganda, and instead decided to focus on fantasy films. Kind of like our good friend Carl Zeman. Now, he doesn't sound uh, in interviews especially passionate about the films he made in this mode, Morgiana included, but he did say that he used them as an opportunity to practice his craft. So Morgiana is this gothic fairy tale centered around two sisters, both played by Iva Janzarova. Mm -hmm. And I was extremely tired when I watched it. So who the fuck knows if it's any good? (laughs) Oh, is that it? (laughs) Actually, I'm pretty sure it is good, possibly even great. Um, Janzarova's performance is exceptional and the overall aesthetic is a delight. But again, I was very tired. Hmm. So that's all I'm all I can say about Morgiana. Okay. What's what's your first film? Well, I'm not going to talk about mine in order because I'm above such uh, you know heteronormative conceptions of time. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, my first film is actually six films. <laughs> okay. Because you, I you watched get, uh, two words per film. No, no, I watched the entire uh, Star Wars saga. <laughs> wow. <laughs> By which I mean uh, the only canon Star Wars movies. <laughs> yeah. So I watched Phantom Menace, Attack of the Clones, Revenge of the Sith, A New Hope, Empire Strikes Back, Return of the Jedi. And, um, you know, we have an entire podcast devoted to uh, uh, lay, lay film do Star Wars. So I don't know if I need to go into depth about this. You do not. But uh, <laughs> I will. I was going to say, <clears throat> I've, I've written something down here, okay? <clears throat> Suffice it to say that... 
the six Star Wars films are some of the most pivotal films of my life. And one of the happiest uh, experiences of watching them again is to confirm the absolute artistic integrity and majesty of the prequels and to confirm that the prequels are some of the most breathtaking and experimental of all Hollywood blockbusters. Uh, I love these films and they will all forever be part of my life. And, um, and uh, yeah, George Lucas should stage a cure at Lucasfilm and throw out the shitty Disney ones and come back and make another three Star Wars movies. <laughs> I can, uh, if I can put one, one uh, wish into the universe, <laughs> it's that. <laughs> so, uh, that's it. That's the, the Star Wars saga. Cool. Uh, I don't know if you want me to count that as one film or two films. Or six films. Or six films. I'll just do another one. Okay. So you, uh, I rewatched a film that uh, uh, I think I've already talked about on the show before, which is They Live. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I rewatched it. Uh, and uh, rewatching it, uh, it just confirms to me that this is my favorite of Carpenter's features, if ne- not necessarily his most polished or uh, technically adept. Okay. I think it is an astonishing film. Uh, in part just based on the specific mood he conjures with, you know, pretty limited means, all told. Uh, And I think (laughs) Roddy Piper's performance is amazing. (laughs) Uh Because it's like, it's it's on one level extremely arch, you know? Like, everything that comes out of his mouth and that Carpenter puts in it is this very sort of, like, extremely, like, almost parodic like action movie dialogue you know Hmm. and there's something just odd about the way he talks and this obvious sort of like canadian lilt to his voice you know uh and uh you know i think he's just uh created this film i think uh i don't i don't i don't know there's just something about this film that makes me keep coming back to it in part because uh it's hard for me to think of a another film working in this mode you know in this sort of like action blockbuster mode it has this like particular set of like leftist politics, and it's kind of a lame reason to like a film, but uh, you know I like that, <laughs> and um, I think that the way that you know Carpenter is able to convey his world in, in the way he uses like black and white uh, photography as this like shorthand for this altered vision, you know, <laughs> hmm. I think is is great, and also is sort of works as a metaphor for what the film itself is trying to do, you know. Um, I think the fight scene is great, uh, in part because it's both like really funny, just in the in the way that it, like almost breaks the the texture of the celluloid entirely to be like, well, you wanted to see a wrestle or wrestle, so here you go, here's a wrestling match, and also in the way it sort of uh, it reminds me of having conversations with people where you're trying to convince them of a specific political thing you believe in, and you just have to keep fighting them until they see things the way that you see them. Uh, and uh, I, 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 I just, I just think it's great. I think the cinematography is great. The score is great, and just the this very paranoiac and completely doomed mood that he conjures is. Uh, I don't know. It's just, uh, it's 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 just proof that you know Carpenter was the best to ever do it. So that's it. That's uh, they live. Now uh, the next film I watched uh, was a little film directed by. Michael Vija, and it's called uh, Babylon 5 colon in the beginning. 
But this yeah, is a Babylon yeah. 5 prequel film that I watched oh, illegally God. on my computer shortly before it expired. Whoa, dude. I can't believe you'd watch something illegally. It's not cool. The resolution was was pretty poor, and I wasn't paying much attention, but it was okay, I guess. <laughs> I've been to call the, uh, the uh, Australian FBI on your, on your ass. Okay. Okay. Uh, hello, Australian FBI. <laughs> hello, real police. <laughs> Speaking of which, <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of the films that I watched you is a film that you talked about. I don't know if it was last time, but not that long ago. <laughs> at some point. You talked about it at some point this year. <laughs> I did, yeah. <laughs> Which is the, uh, so far, uh, it, tragically, the only vehicle by renowned comedian, renowned Canadian comedian, uh, Norm MacDonald. <laughs> it's a little <laughs> film called Dirty Work, uh, which I think is exceptionally funny. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> and it, it feels like the pinnacle of a certain like Adam Sandler 90s comedy in a way mm. in that like <laughs> McDonald's performance style is so it just seems so above all the material he's doing but he's also like on the same level as it at the same time which <laughs> is a very sort of it's a very curious energy but uh, it managed just to make everything really funny mm. Um, I uh, just think that you know the, the script is kind of whatever you know but just the way that every joke is delivered I think is really great and uh, Norm McDonald's really funny and that's it that's all I got great film so I'm going to combine the last fil- two films that I talked about okay I'm going to push them into one film what do I get you Memoirs of an Invisible Man. Yep, I get the 1992 Chevy Chase vehicle, Memoirs of an Invisible Man. Masterpiece. Well, <laughs> uh, I do think that several of... This is, this is I feel like, the, the film of Carpenters that I've heard the least about going into it. Hmm. Maybe maybe this and The Ward or the films of his that no one cares about, you know? Just sort of these forgotten films. Uh, and I was kind of hoping going into this that I would it would be something of a, uh, you know... Um, I mean, you always want to appreciate something or appreciate uh, uh, a film in the oeuvre of a director that you appreciate that's that's not as well spoken about or has kind of a toxic reputation. I feel like that's something that's one of the great pleasures of exploring a director's filmography, you know? Hmm. And now we've gotten that uh, already uh, this year with Carpenter with Ghosts of Mars. Or I guess that was not shooting gears. <laughs> we've gotten that already with Carpenter with Ghosts of Mars, which is a great film that is uh, unjustly lambasted, I think. Right. Um, but, Hugh, you know, I have to say, I do not think that uh, the innately interesting qualities of Carpenter's cinema overcome the uh, sort of um, issues with this film, you know? Mm. Such as? And, well, such as uh, the lead performance by the star, Chevy Chase. <laughs> uh, who, uh, I don't know what he's best suited for, you know? Probably nothing. <laughs> But uh, he does not. There's there's a um, a like a seed of a good idea here, you know, because uh, the film is about this yuppie who's played by Chase, who uh, you know has nothing in his life pretty much, and then he gets turned invisible in this accident, and uh, government wants to get him, you know, and you you can see how that would be the 
uh, impetus for you know if if maybe if Harbinger were directing it and it wasn't a Chevy Chase vehicle, how this could lead to some interesting like existential like dilemmas, you know? Yeah. But uh, and there's like touches of that here and there. But when you're, when you're given sort of a uh, actor who seems to not give a shit at all. <laughs> Which is which is especially strange considering that apparently Chase was the person who onboarded Carpenter into the product to begin with. Mm. So, but it's clear that he doesn't care, uh, and so there's kind of a, a void in the middle of this film. And unfortunately, uh, the fact that he's invisible helps not because this is a film that was clearly like uh, cut to ribbons and then patched together with voiceover. <laughs> there is a lot of extremely like lazy Chevy Chase VO. <laughs> um, now, uh, you know, I do think this film. I mean, it's it's pretty standard. You know, he gets turned invisible, and there's some like dumb comedy. Uh, but I do think it has some enjoyably nightmarish imagery, <laughs> uh, some of which I shared with you privately. Um, like there's this great scene where. <laughs> Chase is having a uh, dream, and he uh, opens this bathrobe to show Daryl Hannah plays his love interest in this movie, uh, his penis, and there's just this uh, invisible zone where his uh, genital should be, which is great. Hmm. Uh, and there's some other, the, the special effects I think are uniformly pretty good, but um, you know, it's kind of in service of nothing. I mean, there are some parts that I think, like I said, do work. I think uh, Sam Neill has a lot of fun playing this, this villainous character. And honestly, this film was a great cast, except for Chase and Daryl Hannah, uh, who plays the female lead. Because <laughs> you got uh, Sam Neill, you got Stephen Tobolowski in there. <laughs> oh, Sam Neill's in it. Yeah, yeah, he plays the uh, villain, who is the CIA operative. Um, but uh, Michael McKeon, you get uh, Rosalind uh, uh, Chow from uh, Star Trek. T-Space 9 in the next generation in wow. a small role. Um, and even a cameo by Carpenter himself. Gosh, that's well. But, uh, and, you know, I think I, the, the parts I find interesting about this film are that it's... This is going to sound so stupid, but uh, I like that the villain of this movie is like the CIA agent, and this is a film that <laughs> directly talks about the fact that, like, I don't know, the CIA murders people in, like, South America, which I was not expecting going into it. <laughs> um, so special effects are good. I think the quality of Carpenters that comes through the most is his uh, deep distrust of the government. You know, understandable, mm. I think. Um, but aside from that, it's a pretty standard vehicle. Though it does have a completely deranged ending, <laughs> which, do you want me to... Can I, is it okay if I spoil it? Yeah. <laughs> So um, the entire movie, they're like, Chase is like, oh, you know, if we just get away, I can just become a stockbroker over the phone, you know? And Daryl Hannah, who has no personality and is like basically a wet blanket who just falls in love with them for no reason that I can determine. Because part of the film is that Chase's character doesn't really have much of a character at all. So it's really kind of inexplicable that she falls in love with them. But I guess if I were being harassed by an invisible man, I would too, you know? Hmm. Um. But so they fall in love or whatever, and uh, the end of the movie, he faces his own death, okay? <laughs> and uh, the film, he reveals that he's still alive to, to Daryl Hannah, and then the film cuts to some unspecified 
point in the future, the credits start rolling, okay? And earlier in the film, he talks about how he would like to live in Switzerland because he can wear a uh, a ski mask because, you know, it's always cold or whatever there, right? So it cuts to Switzerland, or what we assume is Switzerland, I guess. And there's the cabin in the woods. There's snow everywhere. <laughs> a man skis down the slope, okay? <laughs> and a pregnant Daryl Hannah comes out <laughs> holding her big, like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> belly, <laughs> which is filled with a child. Uh, the man unwraps his... Uh, <laughs> The ski mask revealed nothing underneath, and then they kiss, and that's the end of the movie. So I just I do really appreciate the fact that uh, I feel like you know the tendency would be to reverse the uh, science fiction aspect, you know, at the end, make him visible again, but uh, that never happens. And also I just <laughs> wonder what 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 the hell an invisible man's child would look like. So mm. it's good stuff. Um, there's and. and you know, this is a film also that has, like, you know, uh, what if the Invisible Man eats that you see is, like, stomach digesting food and stuff like that. So that's fun, too. But uh, overall, I give it a solid meh. So. Cool. And you can kind of, you can, you can, you can really tell that Carpenter's heart wasn't really in it. Because <laughs> apparently he made it after uh, they would have kind of, uh, or he had this, like, some difficulties getting profits or something from they live and then it was like oh, i just need to do a vehicle and i think this is the film of his that had the highest budget but don't quote me on that um and you can sort of tell that oh, it was just a for hire vehicle for him so it's okay you should watch it cool all right uh Eh? All right, the next film I uh, watched was directed by Jesus Salvador Trevino. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's called uh, Babylon 5 colon Third Space. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, as, as you may have guessed from its title, this is another Babylon 5 TV film. <laughs> I and did probably guess the that. most cinematic of all the Babylon 5 TV films, if that means anything to you. <laughs> no. Nope. Uh, so this is kind of a standalone, uh, certainly more standalone than in the beginning um, story. This kind of Lovecraftian cosmic horror business, and uh, yeah, it's pretty enjoyable. Obviously, not recommended to anyone who doesn't give a shit about Babylon Five, such as you mm. and our entire audience. So uh, <laughs> yeah. there we go. Next. All right. Next to you, I'm going to talk about three films that are of the same series. Okay. Mm-hmm. So recently, uh, as has been documented on this podcast, I've been exploring the like lesser-known works of Memoro Oshi, uh, who is obviously well, probably not, but as well known as the director of like Ghost in the Shell, and actually, I guess pretty much that's the big film that he's known for in the West is Ghost in the Shell and its sequel. Um, but uh, given that, you know, this uh, quarantine thing that's happening seems to be stretching on to infinity. This uh, quarantine thing that's happening. This uh, quarantine thing. This uh, quarantine thing. This uh, quarantine. This 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 quarantine
All right, so I've been watching a lot of Mamoru Oshii films recently. Given that we've had a lot of time on our hands, I decided to uh, investigate one of the more daunting, daunting uh, entries in his filmography, uh, which is the Pat Labber series of OVA and movies. Uh, Hugh, do you know what an OVA is? No. So OVA stands for Original Video Animation. Yeah, it is basically exactly as you might expect from those words. It is essentially a, well, I mean, it was. I don't know if they still exist in the same form today, but uh, it's basically a direct-to-DVD or VHS or Blu-ray, you know, whatever video, home video format. Mm-hmm. Uh, release of an animated film that was, you know, created, or film or TV series, like I said, uh, that was created specifically for home video release, right? Mm-hmm. So original video animation. Uh, and unlike the sort of um, stink about the word uh, direct DVD that exists in the United States, there's nothing that's sort of derogatory about calling something that in Japan. Uh, it's not really a marker of quality or anything like that. It's more of just a... Uh, I guess, it, it, if anything, it's like a sign of the length of the project. You know, OVAs are shorter than uh, actual television series. Mm-hmm. Uh, case in point, the Pat Laver series. <laughs> uh, so, Pat Laver. What is a Pat Laver, you? <laughs> no idea. So, uh, before we get to that, I'm going to talk about another word, which is headgum, okay? Which is this creative team that came together in the 80s to make this series. That was comprised uh, chiefly of Mamoru Oshii, Kenji Kawai, and uh, Kazunori Ito, uh, all of whom collaborated on pretty much all of Oshii's films. Um, but uh, so this team came together in the 80s and made something called Mobile Police Pat Labber, or just Pat Labber. Uh, the first thing that was created under this name was this OVA, uh, and it sort of introduced the setting and the like, main characters of the world. Uh, so the setting is this like near future version of Japan uh, that differs from our uh, present day, our near future that we live in now, uh, in that there are these machines called labbers, which are basically just mecha that have um, sort of made their way throughout industry. Okay, so <laughs> you got you got a labber or labor down, right? So, well, what's a pat labber, I hear you ask, you? What's a pat labber? So, pat labber stands for patrol labor, and these are labor vehicles that have been, uh, that have been specifically designated to the um, police force known as SV-2, which is a special vehicle uh, unit two, all right? And that is a division of the Tokyo police that deals specifically in crime that is related to labor, okay? To labors. All right, got it? Mm -hmm. So there is the Soviet series. Uh, The tone of the series is pretty uh, comedic, very white, very sort of um, slapsticky. uh, with mixing a a couple of uh, Oshi's more heady philosophical interests here and there, but mostly kept the tone sort of light. Uh, the characters are very broadly drawn. It's got this very sort of sunny and optimistic energy that goes throughout the show. Uh, 
So they made this show, and then they're like, let's make a movie to be released in theaters. So a couple of years later, <laughs> I'm going to tell you. A couple of years later, out comes Pat Labber 1, which uh, takes place a couple of years after the series concluded, and uh, follows the uh, team of SV2 as they investigate this series of destructor labor malfunctions that, that seemingly do not have a cause. Uh, the solution to the, this mysterious series of events uh, leads to a, a sort of philosophical quandary about the way uh, sort of the physical makeup of cities determine the lives of their citizens and how they affect their psychologies and that sort of stuff. Uh, and um, so it emerges, so it's definitely more serious than the TV series, but it still retains that sort of uh, goofy and sunny quality as well. All right, so that's Pat Lever one. <laughs> I give it four out of five stars. Okay, mate. Alright, and then I followed that film up here with uh, the follow-up to Pat Labber uh, 1, Pat Labber 2. <laughs> so, uh, as much as I enjoyed the first Pat Labber film and the way that it attempted to create this balance between Oshi's philosophical interests and the sort of more ground, or not grounded, but the more uh, comedic and light tone of the series, uh, the moody funkiness of the second Pat Lapper film resonated much more with me than that did because it has much in common with uh, the original Ghost of the Shell, which is one of my favorite films. Uh, so um, the series and the film all focus on this team, as I said, and Pat Lapper 2 sort of ditches them uh, pretty much entirely except for about 10 minutes at the end <laughs> and at the beginning. Instead, it focuses on the leader of this team and the leader of another team that's like the more competent version of them. Um, and so, uh, a little bit of background. <laughs> this film <laughs> this film exists partially as a response to Japan's involvement in a UN peacekeeping operation in Cambodia, which is the first direct military action the country had participated in since the end of World War II, right? So both uh, Moro Oshii and the screenwriter Kazunori Ito were against this operation, uh, you know, and, and that they were for the, uh, the um, provision in, the, in the, the Constitution that said that, you know, Japan can't have a standing army. Uh, and so this is sort of transmuted, this real life of it is transmuted into the film, uh, into, um, this event that kicks it off, which is that uh, it's basically just a recreation of real life where the film opens in Southeast Asia and there's a UN peacekeeping force, basically. Except for instead of having, you know, helicopters and other uh, weapons of violent terror, there's uh, mechas. <laughs> and uh, there's this guy named Suge who basically gets radicalized by these events. And he sort of sets into motion this conspiracy that brings Japan to the brink of civil war. Um, but uh, what is really interesting in this film is that how it mixes this grand sort of political conspiracy with uh, <laughs> um, more philosophy. I know how much you love this, Hugh. So, so I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, you know, I'll cut, I'll cut, I'll cut, a, uh, I'll cut about uh, five hundred words that I wrote here. Okay. <laughs> Um, but eventually a web of right-wing conspiracy and personal betrayal emerges from this narrative. 
And uh, basically the film is disquieting the way that it raises questions about the neoliberal peace of the 1990s and never resolves them. Uh, the sort of heroism of the police unit in the previous film and the TV series is uh, made more ambiguous as a result. And uh, I think this pushes, this, this high dose of ambiguity pushes this film uh, into masterpiece status. And it has one of the best uh, like ambient electronica soundtracks that I've heard in my life. So uh, high praise for Pat Lauber too. <laughs> Uh, now here, can you guess the third movie I'm going to talk about right now? Pad Labber 3? <laughs> That's right, I'm going to talk about <laughs> Pad Labber 3. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, which is actually called WXIII uh, Pat Labber the Movie 3. That's the official title. Now, uh, this is kind of a, the black sheep of the Pat Lapper movie series in that um, yeah, basically... Yeah, the same. Uh, uh, well, why is it the black sheep then? I don't know why. I, I just always hear people telling me <laughs> number three is the black sheep. So. <laughs> yeah, people are always talking about this. Mm. <laughs> so basically, um, it was made many years after the Pat Lapper 2. Basically, I think like 10 years uh, in between this film and Pat Lapper 2. And it actually takes place for that film uh, and it has a completely different creative team uh, except for the um, person who scored it uh, so uh, basically it reconfigures this the broad scope of the two movies to this very sort of personal story that touches a lot on a lot of the same like themes uh, you know namely the role of technology and the way cities you know create lives but it almost reverses the polarity of those films which are about this like very macro scale you know, of this huge conspiracy that is not understood versus this film it's it's this very personal tale of these two detectives attempting to investigate this uh, bioweapons manufacturer basically the film sort of boils down to a series of scenes that sort of demonstrate the way that people sort of um, create their own spaces in these you know seemingly inhospitable cities uh, and the way that humans always leave a touch in the technology that they design. Um, and, uh, you know, I thought it's, it's pretty enjoyable. I think that uh, at the end of the film, uh, it kind of just devolves into a dull action sequence, which is kind of a letdown. But uh, still, overall, I give it uh, I give it a recommend for Pat Labber, the movie three. Oh, uh, 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 sorry, I'll just take the gun out of my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> Did you pull it out of your teeth? Okay. Oh wait! I can keep talking about I can keep talking about Pat Labber if I is it my turn? My turn? <laughs> um, sure. Look, I don't know about you, but I'm a little sick of these cishet white men and their dominance over the media landscape. Does that describe you as well, my friend? Uh, no. My favorite filmmaker okay. is George Lucas. Cause, so, because it's just me <laughs> exclusively. Yeah. And you know, it's so easy to fall into a pattern of viewing where every film you watch is directed by yet another cishet white man because that's the default that's what gets delivered right okay wokey right so i wanted to break out of that mode and watch a film by a cishet white woman in this case janet greek can't say i've heard of her and it's a little film starring martin sheen and ian mcshane that film river of souls 
or to give it its full title, Babylon 5 colon River of Souls. <laughs> My God, what is wrong with you? <laughs> this is another... I guess I can't complain that much. <laughs> yeah, you can't. This is another standalone <laughs> Babylon 5 TV film. And you know what? A... It's okay, I guess. <laughs> it's amusing to learn that, that Martin Sheen was initially cast as a human character. But when he, when he arrived on set, he said, I want to be the alien. <laughs> so he became funny. the main alien. Oh and presumably, uh, which was presumably the part that Ian McShane was originally cast in. So I think they switched roles. And you know what? The film would have been better if the roles were switched <laughs> like they were supposed to be. Because Martin Sheen is no fucking alien. He just sounds like Martin Sheen. <laughs> that sounds pretty funny. But it's not bad. We should play the Babylon 5 role-playing game. We definitely should. <laughs> That'll be a bonus episode for the Patreon. Uh, anyway, you're turning in. God, how many of these fucking Babylon 5 direct-to-TV <laughs> movies are there? <laughs> uh, let's see. All right, I'm going to go through one really quickly, which is I watched the early John Carpenter short, Captain Voyeur. Uh, which yeah. I don't think is Which you also watched, I think, and didn't talk about did. last time. Uh, which I don't think is great, but I think it is worth watching. <laughs> It is funny. It is funny. Uh, there's a great uh, dog sex joke that I thought was uh, amazing. Mm. Uh, so that's Captain Voyeur. Uh, and then, Hugh, I watched a film called Getting Any. Mm-hmm. Which is a uh, Takeshi Kitano joint. <laughs> I think that's how he appropriately, I think that's the way he describes his own films, right? Yes. He's like Spike Lee. Um, but uh, unlike most Takeshi Kitano films, at least the popular image of Takeshi Kitano films, which are sort of droll, uh, existentially inclined gangster films, that is uh, that reductive description can encompass this uh, you know, pretty good filmmaker's work. Uh, this is a zany comedy, which sort of... Um, reveals its creator's origins uh, in the world of, uh, you know, vulgar uh, stand-up and sketch comedy. Mm. Uh, And this is a pretty interesting film in that uh, at first glance it kind of, well, I I don't know if this is quite accurate, but the impression that I think you get from it initially is it's kind of a uh, Zebra or Zucker Abrams Zucker film in that it mm. just likes to throw all these gags at you, right? But the sort of very dry um, tone that pervades, or not dry, that's not the right word, but um, a deadpan tone that pervades through uh, all of Katano's other films for the most part is, is very much present here. And it's pretty much localized well it's it's a it's a it's i mean the reason this film is so funny is i'll explain it like this so the main main actor basically all the deadpan quality is localized to this guy who who goes by the singular name of uh, dan can okay mm-hmm. that's the actor's name and uh he is the sort of uh very stone-faced like underreacting uh, sort of guy uh, and I would say about uh, 90% of why this film is so funny is that you know it's, it pairs these extremely absurd situations with this very droll and you know completely uh, minimalist performance and the uh, sort of contrast between them is extremely funny so what is this film about Hugh I hear you ask 
Mm-hmm. So uh, this actor, Dan Can, plays a um, unemployed, uh, I guess, incel. I guess that's how you describe him. Who uh, is the beginning of the film is him watching a porn movie, okay? And uh, the incident that sort of uh, sets the sexual intercourse of that film into more motion is that the uh, couple at the center of it are having sex in a car, okay? So uh, you know, being a man, being a young man of um, of vigor and uh, and uh, of heterosexual inclination, he uh, comes to the belief that he must acquire a car uh, in order to have sex in it. Okay, hmm. so uh, he goes to the dealership, he gets a car, and through a series of hapless events, his car gets destroyed. He wants to get a convertible because he believes that'll be a better uh, vehicle for his sexual escapades. Uh, and the film sort of, but the problem is he doesn't have enough money to buy a convertible that he wants to. So the film sort of proceeds in this, uh, it almost reminded me of a Peter, like a Peter Greenaway, like one of Peter Greenaway's early films. The structure is almost like uh, lexical as opposed to standard like film hmm. structure. So it's like, okay, so he needs to get money, right? So what does he do for money? Well, he can rob a bank. And then the film presents like three or four sketches about him trying to rob a bank, okay? And it's like, Mm. oh, maybe he'll become a Yakuza. And then the film follows him as a Yakuza for like 20 minutes. It just runs through all these absurd variations on the premises that it creates. Uh, And I think this uh, film is extremely funny. And I don't want to talk too much about it because I think a lot of the pleasure in it is experiencing the... uh, like very insane gags uh, without any hint of foreknowledge. Uh, so I don't want to spoil any of them, but uh, I would highly recommend watching it and laughing, uh, even though it's uh, uh, very un-PC and sort of slathered with sex and um, shit and uh, other like vulgar stuff. So good stuff. Good, good film. You should watch it. I do like that on the Wikipedia page, and I quote, a French interviewer asked the filmmaker if the giant turd seen near the end of the movie <laughs> was a metaphor for the decadence of the Japanese society. <laughs> but Katano laughed and answered that it wasn't that at all and it was only meant as a local colour joke. So. <laughs> all right, what do you got next? Uh, what do I have next? Okay, well, it's time to break things up a little bit, finally. The mm. uh, next film uh, I watched was directed by Michael... Fija, and if that name <laughs> sounds familiar, oh, because that's the it. same director as uh, Babylon Five: Colon in the beginning. Ah, but maybe mm. I so enjoyed that prequel film that I decided to explore his non-Babylon Five filmography. Well, if you thought that, mm. you are incorrect, because the next one I watched was titled <laughs> Babylon Five: Colon A Call to Arms. Uh huh. Which is another Babylon Five TV film. <laughs> Um, this one operates as... How did you want... Do you have these on DVD? We will get to that. This one operates effectively as a backdoor pilot for the mm. short-lived spin-off series Crusade. And it's okay, I guess. Um, the reason <laughs> I have all these films is because, uh, with the exception of In the Beginning, which I said I watched illegally, I happened upon a old DVD box set... Um, second hand at a uh, shop in the city 
Okay. <laughs> Should I uh, keep on going? Off you go. All right, so I'm going to talk about another three films, but uh, unlike that uh, very long-winded Pat Lapper uh, speech, I'm going to go through these really quickly mm-hmm. uh, because I don't really think they're of note. Uh, and, Hugh, your Babylon 5 uh, TV films are to buy Godzilla films. Mm. <laughs> Because I watched three of the uh, Heisei series of Godzilla movies. I watched The Return of Godzilla, which was the first film sort of made after a big break between uh, Godzilla movies, and uh, it's okay. (laughs) Uh, Probably the most interesting part is at the beginning, which has this very, like, horror movie feel where this, like, journalist happens upon this abandoned ship, and it's filled with all these, like, bizarre creatures that try to kill him. It reminded me a lot of playing a horror video game. But the uh, rest of the movie, save for a couple of uh, very surreal shots of uh, uh, Tokyo sky uh, escape uh, filled with radiation, uh, I thought was pretty boring. So <laughs> not my favorite Godzilla movie. Uh, what might be my favorite Godzilla movie is the next Godzilla movie I watched, which is Godzilla vs. Biolante. And Hugh, I hear you ask, what is a Biolante? What is a Biolante? Well, Hugh, Biolante is, of course, uh, the uh, radiation plant creature that uh, has grown out of the, like, body or cells of this mad scientist um, who <laughs> has, or sorry, it's grown out of the, the body or cells of the daughter of a mad scientist. Uh, and uh, if that sounds pretty crazy, then uh, as opposed to the Return of the Godzilla, which is pretty boring, this film really amps the zany, like wacky quality that you go to like sort of a mid-tier Godzilla film for. Uh, you know, he fights a plant monster. There's all sorts of weird asides. Like there's a sequence where uh, he, um, where they talk about creating a sperm bank for all the world's geniuses, which is completely crazy. <laughs> And it's like a weird eugenics thing in the middle of this Godzilla movie. There's a very strange subplot involving a fictional Middle Eastern country, which is obviously supposed to stand it for uh, Saudi Arabia. <laughs> there's a team of Australian commandos at the beginning. And there's all this fighting no. for Godzilla cells. Uh, and uh, I quite enjoyed this particularly dub and UV Godzilla film. And I think the special effects of Biolante are really fun. So that is Godzilla versus Biolante. And then I uh, uh, suffered through yet another Godzilla film, and I watched Godzilla vs. King Ghidorah. And you know, Hugh, you know what I was missing in all my other Godzilla films? I was missing a bit of old-fashioned Japanese nationalism, (laughs) as this is a very strange film uh, that is on one hand very sort of like slapdash and stupid, on the other hand has uh, very sort of odd things to say about Japan. in that uh, basically the film is like, okay, so, uh, you know, Godzilla, they're looking out for Godzilla, and then there's these time travelers that come, uh, and they uh, are like, oh, in the future, unless we go to the past and stop Godzilla from happening, Japan's going to be destroyed from God- by Godzilla. Um, but wouldn't you know it, you the uh, time travelers are, in fact, evil Westerners from the future who... And Japan has become the most powerful country on earth. So they go to the past in order to stop it from achieving financial domination. (laughs) 
Uh, and a lot of it takes is, is about like it flashes back to World War Two, and there's a great scene where uh, <laughs> the dinosaur, because this this is a film that does a little bit of uh, let's say revisionist history, because uh, unlike the previous films where Godzilla just you know sort of comes from the sea, maybe gets awoken by you know nuclear testing or whatever. Uh, in fact, this film is uh, very much like there's a dinosaur that for some reason protected the Japanese soldiers from American uh, American incursion into the Marshall Islands. And there's a pretty amazing scene where uh, a dinosaur murders a bunch of American soldiers and then uh, gets wounded. And then a squad of, uh, you know, Imperial Japanese soldiers salute it, which I thought was really funny. <laughs> Um, but uh, so there's a bunch of weird stuff like that. But uh, Hugh, I want I want to tell you about the best scene in this movie. Okay. Mm-hmm. So um, basically, a plot involves the people from the future taking a couple of uh, random Japanese people from the present or the then present, and taking them back to the past so they can trick them into killing Godzilla. Who cares? But so when they go to the past, <laughs> there's this uh, amazing sequence where their ship like looks like a UFO. Okay. And then, so you see this like special effect of like the UFO flying to the island where the dinosaur that'll become Godzilla is living at. Okay. And then the film cuts to an American, like a, these two people on this American battleship, okay? <laughs> and hmm. uh, there's a commanding officer and like his, uh, I don't know, second in command. And um, the uh, second in command is like, what was that, sir? Was that an asteroid? And uh, the commanding officer's like, why, no, I think that was some sort of flying spaceship. And then uh, probably the greatest line of any uh, film uh, pro- probably ever occurs, which is, the commanding officer is says, uh, "You should. This is probably the most miraculous thing that anyone has ever seen. You should definitely go home and tell your son about this, Lieutenant Spielberg." <laughs> this is so. That scene is great. Uh, the rest of the movie is very sort of odd. It's very stupid. Uh, has its fun moments, but it's kind of ruined by this uh, strain of Japanese Japanese uh, nationalism. You know, so. That's Godzilla versus King Ghidorah. And then I also rewatched Thief, which I've talked about on the show before, and uh, yeah. remains interesting. a uh, interesting, you know, uh, wonderful, uh, beautiful interesting. film. So interesting. That's Thief. All right, what do you got? Uh, the next one I watched was called Babylon Five: Colon <laughs> The Palm Beach Story. <laughs> what? Actually, I just watched The Palm Beach Story. Uh, you watched that that crap. Yeah. Um, so this is a crisp screwball comedy from one Preston Surges. <laughs> Sorry about it again. This is a crisp screwball comedy from Preston Sturges, and certainly one of his best, thanks in no mm. small part to Claudette Colbert's magnetic performance. Ruby Valley is also surprisingly good. Hmm. From the modernist parody of the film's opening to the winkingly phony contrivance of the ending, this is a constant delight. The end. Raves Hugh Hamilton of the Project A Plus podcast. That's right. Uh, I'm going to do another two films in one. Because. Uh, actually, I'm going to do another three films in one. I take it back. <laughs> Briskly. Yep. Because I watched uh, three films by the same director, which is, I 
delved further into the filmography of one Shinya Tsukamoto, he of Tetsuo the Iron Man. Uh, the first film of his I watched was The Phantom of Regular Size, which is a short film he did right before Tetsuo, and basically is the uh, incipient version of that. Um, and uh, contains a lot of the same sequences and scenes, except for done ch- more cheaply <laughs> and uh, shittier quality. Uh, and it has a, you know, just like Tetsuo does, but to a uh, it's not as successful, obviously, but it has a charmingly handmade quality that I found quite appealing. Uh, and there's a weird scene where they go to uh, Shinya Tsukamoto's character's apartment. There's a giant picture of uh, Woody Allen on the wall. That <laughs> was very mystified by this. Uh, so that's the fit of regular size. Uh, then I watched uh, his first studio film that he made after Tetsuo in order to raise money for another project, which is called Haruko the Goblin. Uh, and just because it was made for a studio and has a more mainstream focus of it, focus than uh, the sort of very uh, eclectic and tone poem aspects of Tetsuo, doesn't mean that it's not a ton of fun, because this is basically what if you mixed one part, uh, you know, Tsukamoto's uh, like, uh, fun stop motion special effects, and with one part the evil dead and also one part ghostbusters <laughs> and you get this very sort of wacky uh horror film that has some very grotesque special effects but is never anything else less than uh, tons of fun and there's one scene that i thought was hysterically funny where um, a man accidentally kills his wife by <laughs> Uh, she is taking a photo of him and is trying to get uh, the entire thing uh, of, of that he's working on into frame and keeps on stepping back until she falls off of a mountain, which I thought was really great. <laughs> really funny. So that's Haruku the Goblin. And I watched one more film by Mr. Tsukamoto, which is Tetsuo 2 Body Hammer, which sort of reconfigures the basic plot line of Tetsuo the Iron Man but makes it into this, it's almost an action film in a way, an action horror film, I guess you could call it. Uh, and this film is also like a more fun version of Tetsuo. Uh, it is, has some very disgusting special effects. There are children who get killed. <laughs> it's, it's great. Uh, uh, to be honest, um, I really enjoyed it, but uh, it sort of faded from my memory because I watched it kind of a long time ago. So that's Tetsuo 2 Body Hammer. Radio. What do you got? Okay, the next film I watched. We're in the home stretch now, for me at least. Uh, How many more films do you have? Two more. Okay. Actually, three more, sorry. Okay. I mean, you should apologize, but. The next film I watched was Star Trek The Motion Picture. Mm, in anticipation of our uh, Star Trek V rewatch? <laughs> yes. Um, so, this was directed by Robert Wise. Wasn't it? Mm, yeah, <laughs> yep. He of um, uh, West Side Story fame, yes. right? Yes. And did oh, he's he had was, an interesting uh, career actually. He was he was Wells's um, was he, he? I know that he worked on Citizen Kane. Is was he an editor? He did work on it, but I'm not sure exactly. Yeah, that might be right. I think he yeah, I think he edited both it and The Magnificent Ambersons. But he did have an, a really yeah. interesting filmography yep. if you go through it. Yeah, he's he's pretty he's a he's a pretty competent journeyman director. I think doesn't really have much of a personal signature, but I mean, I guess like the the sound of music is torture, but 
We will also be exploring one of his films in our sister podcast at some point. <laughs> That's true. That's true. He made 1971's The Andromeda Stream. Mm. But he also made like some really iconic and influential sci-fi films like The Day the Earth Stood Still, funnily enough. Mm. Interesting. And also Star Trek The Motion Picture. Indeed. So what did you think about this film? I've always had a fondness for it, personally. So this was obviously the first uh, of the Star Trek feature films. Mm. And it had an extremely tortured production history. <laughs> and it's, it's the only Star Trek film that co-starred a probable pedophile. Yes, indeed. As far as we know. Um, and uh, well, it was considered something of a failure okay, okay. at Let's, the time. We can, we can phrase this in a non-litigious way, which is confirmed child porn enthusiast. No, 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 that's not it. <laughs> Isn't that what he got in trouble for? No, he actually confessed to oh, actually file. physically doing something to underage girls. Uh. Once per decade, weirdly enough. Like 1972, 1982, 1992, or something like that. It's kind of weird. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, it's not just consuming child pornography, if that was even part of the allegation. Mm. Unless it's beginning to confuse someone else. Anyway, um, at least that's what I remember reading when I was looking up this film recently. But anyway, uh, as I said, this had an extremely tortured production history and it was considered something of a failure at the time, even though it was quite commercially successful. Mm. Um, but I have to say that it held up better than I expected. I remember being bored by it as a teenager, um, but watching it now I really don't consider it especially boring. Good Even that uh, infamously slow sequence where Kirk rides a shuttle to the Enterprise, I that find more amusing than it is tedious, <laughs> if only for its painful debt to 2001. <laughs> I've, I've actually found it really funny watching well, it. This it's the same special effects uh, supervisor. So. Um, certainly there are issues with the film. Um, far too mm. much time is spent on the bridge of the Enterprise with the actors reacting to a giant TV screen. <laughs> but the effects sequences on that TV screen, which come courtesy, uh, as you alluded to, of Douglas Trumbull of 2001 fame and John Dykstra of Star Wars fame, are very often breathtaking. Mm. And I, in terms of the story, I did find the, t the twist at the end, which I didn't remember, pretty cute. And uh, even if the film doesn't lend itself especially well to the big screen, special effects sequences aside... To me, there's nothing more Star Trek-y than the crew sort of standing limply around the bridge trying to communicate with some potentially deadly cosmic blob. Mm, so, that's true. Um, I think I just watched the original version of this because I know that there's like a, a director's cut version with added special effects, like CGI. Yeah, that sounds terrible. And nonsense. And I didn't really care. It's, about it's, all, it's, all, it's, all, it's only good when Daddy Lucas does it. That's right. Anyway, your turn again. Um, let's see. Right. Uh, next, I watched a film called uh, Angel Dust, uh, which is a very not especially widely seen Japanese film uh, directed by uh, Ga Karu. Uh, Ishii, who is a uh, underground filmmaker who made a lot of like weird punk movies, uh, but then in 1994 he made this like very sort of strange um, psychological 
Thriller, uh, which owes a lot to David Lynch and um, Silence of the Lambs. But unlike sort of the uh, postmodern um, snore fest that I suggest there, uh, this one was a very uh, curious mood that it develops, uh, and it manages to stand apart from uh, those two influences by um, wrestling with something that I think was very uh, on the minds of a lot of Japanese people at the time, which is the uh, influence of cults on Japanese society. Uh, and uh, it is a very sort of taut and strange thriller. I think slightly comes apart at the end, but I think um, manages to carve a unique niche out of a tired uh, genre, namely the uh, genius killer, genius mysterious killer, and the harried, uh, harried um, detective that pursues them. So I really uh, enjoyed this a lot. And that's called Angel Dust. And then, Hugh, I watched a film that you talked about not long, not long ago, and I share your opinions with uh, about it almost exactly, so I almost don't even feel the need to articulate my own opinion about it, which is a little John Carpenter film called Assault on Precinct 13. Mm-hmm. And if I can add two little dashes of my own take on it, which is I did appreciate how brutal this film is, <laughs> in that, uh, uh, you know, child gets murdered. <laughs> it's good stuff. <laughs> Um, and I like that in some respects this is kind of Carpenter's most conservative film you know Uh, it's all about this like sort of faceless gang Um, but I think it does introduce enough ambiguity into the into its setup to sort of um, push against that uh, dull political reading in that uh, I think there's an equivalence that's drawn between the police officers and the people who are state or are sort of trying to survive at the police station and the criminals that are or the uh, like gang that is attacking them mm-hmm. and the first sequence which features basically a reverse of the setup of the the rest of the film yes. where you know you follow these you know unnamed gang members they basically just get murdered by the police you know so I think that complicates that sort of uh, straight conservative reading of it uh, and also the ethnicity of the cop and the fact that uh, you know he enlists the help of this death row inmate um, but uh, yeah I agree that the performances are kind of uh, except for the weed one are pretty uh, mediocre um, but I do think it has a good mood so uh, you know good film but I think uh, far from Carpenter is best mm, I agree. it's no mem- it's it's no memoirs of an invisible man and I believe it is your turn now. I'll be brief here, because uh, the next one I watched was the next... That one, five. <laughs> no. next one I watched was the next film in the Star Trek film series, Star Trek, colon, The Search for Spock. No, that's not it. <laughs> Star Trek, colon, The Wrath of Khan. Uh, I think the consensus favorite. Yes. But unlike the consensus around the Star Wars movies that suggest that Empire Strikes Back is the best Star Wars film, I think this is a somewhat deserved consensus. It's definitely a contender. It's a great, great film. So this was essentially a course correction uh, after the motion picture, which pushes the franchise in more of an adventure direction. 
Yeah. Um, Definitely brings it more in line with the Star Wars. Harv Bennett, who effectively took over the role that Roddenberry had with the previous film uh, as producer and co-writer, and um, new director Nicholas Meyer. Mm. Uh, not much needs to be said about it, but it's obviously a much tighter and altogether more fun film than its predecessor. All done on a fraction of the budget. I love those. I, lo- I love the gross warm things. <laughs> yes, and uh, Ricardo Montalban is great as Khan, yeah. of course. Yeah. And I think the uh, Spock death scene, even if they immediately like you know want to do it in the next film, is affecting. <laughs> mm. Good film. Good film. I don't want to, you know. Obviously, my tastes in Star Wars films is fairly atypical, but uh, I feel like uh, with the Star Trek films, I hew more towards the uh, standard line about them. Except that, that we both agree that we both agree that number five is the best. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. <laughs> but two is uh, number two, as it were. Five, two, six. Yeah, uh, five, three is two, the worst six, one. Four. Three, one, I don't, I don't really like three that much. I don't. I don't really like four that much either, to be honest. I, I haven't seen it in a couple years. I, I need to rewatch it. Anyway, uh, is it my turn? Yes. All right. So I uh, finished out a series of films that I uh, started watching kind of a while ago, which is I watched the final female prisoner scorpion film. I watched female prisoner scorpion uh, colon seven hundred one's grudge song. Uh, which, much like Pat Labber 3, is sort of the uh, uh, you know film of the series that's not that well regarded because they swapped out the entire creative team except for uh, the lead actress. So I guess you could say it's kind of the black sheep of the series. I think what makes this film interesting... The no. Is the fact that it, 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 it sort of... If the other films had a sort of... Implicit politic about them, you know, that is uh, sort of abstractly hinted at. This is a film that sort of directly sort of insinuates itself into the political movements of Japan at the time, and that uh, one of the lead characters is a uh, former like student activist uh, who basically gets tortured by the police. Um, but uh, you know, I think this film is okay. So that's it. <laughs> Right, and then I watched a film that you've watched, but I did, have not talked about it on the podcast, which is uh, Nagasa Oshima's final, nope, <laughs> final fiction film, uh, which is called Taboo or Gohato, mm. Gohato, uh, which is about uh, sort of uh, this elite band of samurai warriors in um, very. Uh, pre-Meiji Restoration Japan and sort of this uh, strain of homosexuality in them. Uh, and I think this film is pretty comparable to um, his earlier uh, uh, In the Realm of the Senses, not so much in terms of its uh, depiction of explicit sex, which is obviously toned down somewhat <laughs> from hmm. that film. Um, but uh, it sort of is about taking this um, figure of, of national mythology, you know, in 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 Empire of the Senses and in uh, in the Realm of the Senses. Uh, it's it's all about taking these mythical figures, right, and imbibing them with this alternate, you know, radical 
sexuality, basically, right? Uh, I feel like this is especially so in this film because it sort of takes these, you know, these figures that I assume were taken as like this very right wing, like nationalistic myth, and sort of suggests a reading of them that like promotes this alternative um, reality, almost, of this alternative view of sexuality. This sort of um, I don't know, and it sort of uh, explores how, you know, homosexuality could have and probably did inform pretty much all of Japanese history. Uh, I thought it was pretty interesting for that reason, and I think it's a very mysterious film that sort of holds the touch, um, but it has some very rapturous images, and I thought it was quite enjoyable. And uh, I was very surprised to, to uh, be interrupted from my... Um, in my uh, you know, cinematic daydream by the appearance of one, uh, what's his name? Oh my God, I'm blanking right now. Chevy Chase? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he appears as himself in the film. It's very strange. Interesting. Uh, Mr. Uh, Tomuro Taguchi, who is, of course, uh, the titular Tetsuo the Iron Man, uh, is also in this film, oh. which I did not know. Uh, and was quite surprised to see. I think uh, Takeshi Katano, who I also talked about earlier today, also gives a very good performance, very twitchy performance. So that's uh, Taboo, a pretty great little film, I think. And now I'm hitting the ball into your court. Okay, the last film I watched over these five long weeks, or however many weeks it's been, was Star Trek, colon, <laughs> The Eyes of Orson Welles. Yeah. Oh, you're so funny. I did the same joke again, and it's funny at the second time. Um, <laughs> is it? <laughs> so this is a documentary about Orson Welles that uh, Mark Cousins made. Mm. And I would say that in order to enjoy this, you need to have both an affinity for Orson Welles himself. Mm, I do. And for Mark Cousins. Not so sure about that one. So fortunately, I fit into that category. So I did enjoy it. I do find something very soothing about that Northern Irish upward lift of mm. Cousins' narration. I agree, though. I don't really think he has anything interesting to say about film history. So. I find his approach to film history to be pretty uh, basic, let's say. Have you seen the story of film? Yeah, I've watched enough of it to know. I feel like I've got the gist. I, I think you'll wince if I describe this film to you. It's, I mean, I kinda, it, it I've, is, I've seen trailers of it. It's a little better than it sounds, I will say. So it's structured as, or at least the narration is structured as like a direct letter to Orson Welles. Mm. But I think, it, I think it works reasonably well enough. And the way the film... Uh, approaches Wells' work through the prism of his artwork, as in his sketches and paintings, uh, was quite interesting, because I, I I didn't know of that side of Wells, to be honest. So even just looking at his work and having that revealed to me uh, was interesting in its own right, independent of what the rest mm. of the film is trying to do or say about Wells. And it ends with an imagined Wells response. <laughs> As well. Oh, that sounds that sounds terrible. But it's, it, I, I would say it's much better than that sounds. Like in the hands of anyone else, I think it would be more wince-inducing than it actually ends up being. Interesting. Some of the stuff that like 
Cousins himself shoots for the film, like just location shots and stuff. Even just the, the quality of the image, kind of bland, <laughs> like, as they were in the story of film, and uh, any any sort of exper- slightly experimental stuff or expressionistic stuff that he tried within the documentary format, aside from his narration and assembling of clips. Um, I, I've never found especially interesting, so interesting, mm. and that same problem occurs here. But I, it's pretty enjoyable. Mm-hmm. I probably won't watch it. <laughs> I tried to watch you another. You like report. going to there, don't you, Orson? Yeah, that's terrible. That's my impression. Um, I uh, I I watched one documentary. Your mother about was it. quite I tr- Shut the fuck up! I tried to Wasn't watch one. You, Orson? I tried to watch a, a it's pretty good impression, actually. That was terrible. I tried to watch a, a documentary about the other side of the web that I thought was really annoying. So that's like basically my uh, opinion. You made a film called was. The Other Shut Side the of the Shut the fuck up! Wind? Holy shit! Didn't you, Orson? Uh, I wish I could go over there and punch you in your stupid fake Irish face. <laughs> Another facet <laughs> of Orson's craft. We're gonna, we're gonna take my headphones off. Is his love? You were a king. <laughs> can I, can good, I fucking do the last film? Didn't think I could pull it off, but I captured the particular Northern Irishness of his accent. Can I? Can I do the last fucking uh, film that I watched, or do you want to keep doing this? No, please. Tell me about no, the other not, not until you ask me <laughs> in, in your own a- stupid accent. <laughs> Wait, I'm waiting for you. Fine, fine. What else did you watch? Okay. I watched one film that I think would be up your alley, actually. Which is I watched a, f- a short film by the French clown. What? His name is Pierre... Uh, Ete, I guess that's how you pronounce it. I don't know. I'm not, my French ain't not so good. As the French say. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it basically, he's this French guy who's been compared a lot to your idol, Buster Keaton. And I watched the uh, first film that he directed. How do you spell his surname? E T A I X. Uh, I think I, I feel like you would enjoy. I feel I feel like he's like right up your alley, because he's like a very you know a classically trained uh, comedian who not comedian or you know like vaudeville person or clown I guess is literally what he was who got into making movies that are um, very uh, like gag based and I feel like uh, you know, let me try to describe this almost kind of rupture. I think it'll appeal to you. Uh, so it's about this um, sort of. Uh, I don't know, random French guy who returns home to his uh, almost bare apartment, receives a letter from his dear sweetheart that uh, says that uh, she has broken up with him. Uh, the film almost, contains almost no dialogue, and it's all pretty much visually conveyed, com- uh, conveyed information. Uh, and then the film sort of is about this series of gags where you know, uh, spurred by this one uh, incident of romantic uh, uh, disentanglement, the entire world starts conspiring against the main character, uh, where basically everything in his apartment uh, sort of becomes this uh, 
uh, you know, comedic uh, monstrosity that refuses to do what he wants. So first his pen keeps on breaking when he tries to use it, and um, then his, you know, his desk falls apart and stuff like that. And I thought it was pretty funny and has a great gag at the end. Um, so if that's called Rupture, it's only about 12 minutes long. So uh, I think you would get a kick out of it. I don't know for sure, though. You might hate it. Why did you watch it? Uh, I wanted to. I don't know. Because, like, I, I went on for, like, hours on the previous podcast about uh, these early silent films of, of people like Max Linder and other less heralded people. Mm. Um, at least in terms of now days, and you were like, "Oh, what's this shit? I don't <laughs> want to watch that." And then you watched this random <laughs> French dude. Well, it's not it's not film forty years later. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I just like to torture you. Um, but uh, but I'll did tell you see his filmography? He's in um, the day the clown cried. Really? He's oh, in man. Pickpocket. Yeah, and that's good. he's also in an Oshima film, Max Monomore. Oh, I want to watch that. Yeah, what a strange career. Um, but uh, I'll tell you the reason I got it is because I've always been interested in the. Well, I was first attracted to the Criterion uh, put out a box set of his his films, right? And mm-hmm. it's sort of an interesting cover, which is a pretty lame uh, reason to be attracted to something. I'll admit, but you know, I read some reviews of his films and thought that they sounded pretty engaging and you know the criterion sale is going on right now uh and this particular set was only like 20 dollars so i was like you know it's got like i don't know like eight or nine films so i might as well just pick it up and then i did and that's why i watched it so happy (laughs) but good stuff i'll definitely have to sample him at some point I, i i feel like the specific way that the world seems to be conspiring against him in this short provided me a lot of like Keaton's brand of com- comedy you know hmm. um, so I, I think you would enjoy it and I will continue to delve into his filmography and report back uh, what else is worth watching but he has a very engaging face and something that I found very charming about the Criterion set specifically which may be replicated on the Criterion channel is that uh, he died in like 2016 or something like that, maybe a little bit before that, but it was after this. No, that's right. It was after this set got released, and uh, he recorded uh, an intro to each one. And I thought the intro uh, to this one, at least, was very charming and gave some great contextual information, which is uh, different from a lot of directorial intros that I've watched, which are pretty boring and uh, lame and make me dislike the movies I'm going to watch. But mm-hmm. uh, I think this guy has a very innate charisma that I find he's he's not an especially attractive guy I think but there's something about his face that I find very appealing so that is rupture and um, Congress should release the day the clown cried <laughs> that's all I got <laughs> <laughs> alright alright uh, so uh, should we uh, end the pod yeah. All right. Uh, you know, I, I don't know how well this bonus features thing is working out. Maybe we should go back to doing this show as it used to be. Yeah, I agree. Maybe not for next week, but maybe the week after that. Mm. How's that sound? We have one more week where we just, you know, do a bonus features pod, and then we can 
cycle back, and maybe we could shorten bonus features a little bit, too. That's right. 